Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and you are listening to episode 9. On today's episode, we have with us a special guest, Vivek Bald. He is the author of the book, Bengali Harlem and the Lost Histories of South Asian America. And that's exactly what we'll be doing. We're going to be discussing the lost histories of early South Asians in America. So I'm going to give you a quick context before we start. So 1917 is a very important year in U.S. immigration history. This is the year where America shut its doors to immigrants, specifically immigrants that were non-white. That includes South Asia. Here's a quick timeline. So the typical U.S. immigration story is that in 1917, the doors were shut. And then for a long time, nobody from South Asia came to the United States until 1965 when America allowed South Asians to come in, but only like highly skilled people, like doctors or engineers. This book debunks that story because the author here discovers and explores this whole wave of South Asian immigrants who came into the United States and established themselves in places like Harlem, hence the title. And these people who came in, they're not talked about, they're not mentioned, they're not studied. It's you know, it's lost in history. It really is. And he comes in and he discovers that and he talks about it and he explores. So I highly recommend this book. There's some really fascinating stuff in there. And yeah, let's get started. So I managed to finish 80-90% of your book. I think I think overall your book kind of challenges these two ideas where one idea is that we all believe that immigrants, South Asian immigrants at least, came from I think before 1917 and then they, there's this gap where no one's here the door's shut in U.S. American history and then for a long time nobody comes into the country and then in 1960s people do come in the country but they only allow the professionals you know doctors engineers the best of the best so it challenges that idea and it also challenges this other idea which I think is even more fascinating is that people South Asian immigrants who came into America and wanted to stay in America wanted to be white or wanted to prove to the Americans that they were white so that they could stay and or at least you know strategically and maybe mentally but there's this whole group of people here who kind of used uh African-American communities and other minority communities to kind of navigate through that right so um why don't I start actually with the the first um, sort of broad assumption that, that you just mentioned. Um, and that is, you know, until very recently, the understanding of South Asian American history was really um, sort of overdetermined by the immigration laws in the sense that um, the, the, the understanding was for, for a very long time that, um, that in the early 20th century that there was this... Uh, a small but significant migration of um, predominantly men from predominantly Punjab, um, Sikh and Muslim, um, who came to the Pacific Northwest, you know, via, originally via um, Vancouver, um, and then made their way down into uh, Washington State, Oregon, and eventually California, initially, you know, working in lumber mills and canneries and, and on the railroads um, in the Canadian case. Um, and then gradually uh, more migration, more folks started coming in through San Francisco and settling in the Bay Area and spreading throughout, um, particularly the central strip, you know, the very kind of fertile strip of land that goes all the way down the center of California. So, um, 
the understanding was that that was the early history and that um, that at a certain point uh, in particularly in 1917 um, when the United States passed a uh, what was known as the Asiatic Barred Zone Act, which was a kind of expansion of the Chinese Exclusion Act from, from 1882. Um, so the understanding was that this early migration um, just came to an end and that the doors shut, as you said, and that um, then several decades passed before the immigration laws were changed to allow a, a a new, you know, migration of, of folks from South Asia to the U.S. Um, as you pointed out, the, that act in the U.S. case, the 1965 Immigration Act, was one that very explicitly um, laid out a series of um, occupational preferences for people from Asia um, who had a particular level of education um, who could come in as, you know, doctors, engineers, professionals, people who were in professions also where there was a particular need for the United States. So in that, in that picture of, of South Asian American history that, that uh, I think lasted for quite a long time, um, it was kind of these two different eras, an early era, era that was predominantly Punjabi, predominantly West Coast, that was also connected, of course, to the Gadar Party, the rise of the Gadar Party, um, you know, which brought together some of the Punjabi, um, you know, farmers and farm workers with exiled Indian nationalists and students who were at UC Berkeley, you know, that 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 represented the early history of South Asians in the U.S. And then um, nothing happened for four decades, and then huh. um, and then after 1965, you had this other big wave of migration but one that was very selected yeah um very much state selected um and that later migration was so uh, i think was such a, a big shift and also consisted of people who were um, because of they were fr from more sort of uh privileged and elite backgrounds were able to really um you know by the the 80s to to sort of determine the image of South Asians in the United States, right? Which was and this the was stereotype. a group that, right? This was a group that that largely, not entirely, but largely embraced the idea of the model minority, um, and and kind of sought to present themselves as that, right? So in that in that history, in that sort of trajectory, um, there's this huge gap in the middle, and and also there's a, a kind of um, Overrepresentation of the post sixty five generation when it comes to, you know, the the kind of public representation of who South Asians are in the United States. So my my own work has you know shifted away from although I do look at and think a lot about those immigration acts, you know what I came to realize and I'll talk about this a little bit more in detail. But I'll, what I came to realize that this way of looking at um, South Asian American history was one that that relied too much on the official record of immigration, and that in fact there was has been has always been also a stream of undocumented migration 
um, that has been predominantly working class. So um, how I got to that place in terms of, of the focus of my work really came through this ongoing, still ongoing project with my friend and collaborator, Aludin Ullah, which started as a documentary film project. I, my background is in documentary film originally, and Aludin and I met in New York in the 1990s when there was a kind of upsurge of um, a kind of critical mass of, of second generation South Asian Americans who were, you know, entering into the arts and activism. And so we met in that context when I was running a, a club night and DJing and doing, working on a, a, you know, a film project about South Asian diaspora music. And Aladdin was working as a stand-up comedian and starting to work as an actor. And when we met very early on, when we met, Aladdin approached me and said, you know, I've really been wanting to make a documentary about my father. And his father um, had died when Aladdin was about 14. And, you know, when I met Aladdin, he was in his 20s, late 20s, maybe. And realizing that he knew almost nothing about this kind of earlier life that his father had had, that he just knew little bits of. And when he told me what he did know, which was that his father came here from what's now Bangladesh, from, from the district of Noakali, um, in the 1920s, and that he settled in Harlem, and that his first wife um, was Puerto Rican, and that Aladdin had these older half-siblings who were Puerto Rican and Bengali. Wow. You know, that, that story was just so different from anything that I had heard before at that point, and also... Um, you know, really went against the grain of this idea that the doors just completely shut in 1917, because Aladdin's father, Habib, had actually spent the majority of his adult life living in New York City after the doors had supposedly closed and before the doors supposedly opened back up again, right? Right. So between 1917 and 1965... Habib Ullah was living in Harlem and um, building a life. So that story, because it went so much against the grain of, of the sort of received wisdom of what South Asian American history looked like, you know, I was I was really just taken by that. And we agreed pretty early on to start working on a documentary film together mm -hmm. um, centered on his father and sort of uncovering more about his father's past. Um, but then when we, you know, when I started that process or when we started that process, I realized that there was no, you know, I mean, I already had a sense of this, but when I looked around a little deeper, I saw that there was no existing historical writing that documented any wave of migration that I could place Aladdin's father, Habib, into, right? Um, you know, there's scholarship about Punjabi migration and there's there was scholarship about post-65 migration right um, and very little in between and so um, I took this kind of crazy step of deciding to apply to PhD programs so wow. that um, I could use the opportunity of going through a PhD program to actually um, you know dig into the archive hone a certain set of archival skills, um, but really do find out, uh, answer, try to answer the question that was on my mind about Aladdin's father, which was, 
whether Aladdin's father was just one guy or the few people, that, the few other Bengali men that Aladdin remembered from his youth, where was this just a small pocket of men from what's now Bangladesh who settled in Harlem early on during the, the exclusion era? Or was there, was there in fact some other history? Was there? So that, that's, and there was, of course. <laughs> um, so, you know, once, uh, and, but that's, you know, the, the sort of, in some ways, a long detour that I took after Aladdin and I originally talked about doing the documentary, and this is going back to the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, once I entered the PhD program, um, I just started diving deeper and deeper into the archives and finding more and more and more. Um, and the way that that process started was um, because I knew that um, Aladdin's father had married a woman from Puerto Rico and that the few um, chachas, the friends of Aladdin's father who Aladdin remembered from his youth, who had all passed away, um, because they had all married within um, African-American or Puerto Rican communities, I went to the marriage records first. So I went to the municipal oh. archives in New York City, um, which is the same building where segments of law and order used to be filmed. So um, so I would walk through the film crew <laughs> or whatever um, and go into this little corner room where they have um, to this day, like most of the records are still on microfilm um, of marriage certificates from the 1920s and 30s. Um, so you like hand went through by hand individually each certificate until you found names that looked South Asian and then you kind of just followed that. Well, I started actually with a set of names that right. I knew were common and that were um, common among that population and common among um, this small circle of Aladdin's father's friends. And those were the names Ula, Mia, Udin, and uh, Ali. Ali, all Muslim right? names. And yeah, all Muslim names. Um, you know, some like Ali common across many different Muslim communities and others like Mia um, that were more specifically or more often than not Bengali. So um, once I started um, searching for those names on these microfilms that, that were like in indexes of marriages, um, I just started finding one after another after another um, and then was able to look at their actual um, marriage certificates and, uh, you know, on microfilm. Um, and start to get this picture. And, you know, the things that, that immediately stood out was that, yes, the majority of these men who married, um, because there were other men who did not marry, but the ones who married, and therefore, in many ways, were easier to track through the archives because of that, um, were, were marrying almost, uh, you know, with, with almost without exception, marrying women who were either African-American or Puerto Rican, in some cases, Dominican. In New um, York. In New York. And then the two areas where they were settling um, were in Lower East Side and Harlem. And the occupation. So these are the little things that you could find on these specific, this specific type of document was the person's name, their address, 
Um, so the, the groom's name and address, the bride's name and address, the groom's parents' names, the groom's place of birth, and the same for the, for the bride. Um, and then the only listed job or occupation for the groom, of course, for, mm-hmm. you know, in these days. Right. Um, even though I think, you know, there were a lot of these women who were working in various different jobs. Um, and uh, so the other thing that came out of those records was the type of work that the men were doing. And it was predominantly the kind of work that other men of color in that era were doing in New York City. So it was restaurant work, um, you know, line cooks, right. washers, etc. It was also elevator operators, um, doormen, right? Yeah. So um, also really immediately what struck me at that moment was that in some ways this meant, you know, if this was a continuous thread, that actually people from what's now Bangladesh have been involved in the New York restaurant industry as workers and cooks for 100 years continuously, wow. right? Yes, so, um so, and then some, some were pet, uh, like street peddlers, like hot dog vendors and things like that. Back in the day. Um, which, like, back in, in the day, days. but then also that's another occupation that's still common among Bangladeshi and other um, South Asian immigrants in New York. So, um, so all of that was really interesting. And that was sort of the first inkling that there was something bigger that was going on there. Um, what I didn't know was how they came. Um, and when I looked at um, when I looked at uh, what's it called uh, ships records, like ships passenger records, I didn't find those names. Um, there were, you know, I found a, a handful of people coming from India in that period. We're talking like the the tens, twenties, and thirties, um, and they were mostly, you know, more elites. Um, you know, people who are coming here as lecturers or there's some of the, the Indian nationalist exiles and, um, upper class. Yeah. Upper class, upper caste, right, uh, right. predominantly Hindu. Um, and, but then when I started looking on some of the same records, not at the passengers on these ships, but crew members, that's where these names kept coming up. The same names, Ali, Ula, Udin, Mia, right? So, um, so it was clear that this was the population out of which this smaller number of men who were settling in the Lower East Side and Harlem, you know, there was no other possibility, possibility indicated in any of the records that I found, except that they were, they must be ship workers who jump ship. And these are boats coming from, these are, I guess, British English boats that came from England and India was colonized at the time. So, okay. And then they just kind of left work. Yeah. So, I mean, this also opened up um, to open me up to the first vein of really, um, uh, you know, really deep existing scholarship that I hadn't known existed yet. And that was, the scholarship of British and South Asian historians writing about the colonial maritime trade. 
And um, these are uh, historians such as Balachandran, uh, Rosina Vistram. Um, there are a number of others, Laura Tabili. Um, and um, so I found that there was this existing scholarship about that, that, that traced this phenomena of that began really in the late 19th century, the late 1800s, in which um, as shipping, international shipping, um, uh, transformed from wind-powered sailing ships to steamships in the latter half of the 19th century. Um, this was a moment where the, the British domination of, of global seaborne trade was, you know, there were now potential challengers to that. And, um, and Britain, you know, made that transition to steamships very um, quickly, uh, but also that entailed, um, or very vigorously, right? Um, but that also entailed new kinds of labor, as as Laura Tabili has has put it, and others have put it, um, like entirely new forms of labor, because um, there was now industrial labor involved in sailing these ships. In other words, the steamships needed coal to run, so they needed entire crews that spend spent most of their time, you know, in the kind of belly of the ship in the engine rooms, shoveling um, coal. Doing things like, yeah, first, you know, wheeling the coal from storage rooms in wheelbarrows over to the engine room, breaking up the coal into smaller pieces, shoveling the coal in, uh, stoking the fire. So these are all different. It's like very much a kind of division of labor, you know, classic industrial kind of labor. Right. Um, so, uh, and the British, uh, in order to, um, you know, uh, to do that kind of work on these these new ships, steam-powered ships, um, the British uh, drew on their colonies. Um, this was labor that a lot of existing white British seamen were not interested in doing. And initially this was like, their attitude was this is not real, um, the work of real sailors, right? Um, and so, uh, so the British reached out to, or reached out is not the right word, <laughs> but the British started recruiting, British shipping companies started recruiting in their colonies, and the colony that they drew on the most was India. Um, the two major ports in India at that time were Calcutta and Bombay, and Calcutta handled about two-thirds of the the British colonial trade. And so in the population of ship workers at that time, you start to see roughly, um, you know, two thirds or so of the Indian ship working labor force being recruited out of Calcutta and about a third out of uh, Bombay, where people were coming from everywhere, uh, you know, as far north as Kashmir and as, you know, also down the coast, a lot of Goanese um, men who got, who were kind of considered the best, uh, the best people to hire as ship's cooks, right? People, so there was kind of Goa. a niche, yeah. Oh. Um, and then there were there were folks from what was then Ceylon, present day Sri Lanka. Um, so 
the British drew on, you know, in all these areas, but the largest number really came out of Calcutta. And so Bengalis. Um, so Bengalis and, and not just that, but there was also um, because of British policies, taxation policies, um, there was a particular um, group, uh, uh, kind of sector of rural society, which was smallholding farmers, smallholding agricultural families who were going increasingly into debt uh, under British taxation. Um, and that's that's a whole other story that, that there are probably others who could speak to better okay. uh, about. But um, so often what happened was that one or two sons of a family that had a certain amount of land but was losing it year after year, having to mortgage it off to money lenders or, or whatever. Um, those sons from those families, which were in places like Silet, Noakali, Chittagong, um, were often then coming to Calcutta to get work. And so they were part of the, the migrant labor force that then found their way to the docks and started doing dock work and started, you know, taking these jobs as ship workers. These are these are contract jobs. Like these are similar to like indentured laborers that were kind of taken to uh, Mauritius, the Caribbeans. Also, the same kind of contract that was exploited that they were exploited in uh, tea plantations, right? So basically, it's the same thing, but in boats. It's yeah, it's similar. It's similar um, in the sense that that often they were on these very long contracts. Uh, you know, it changed in different eras, but at, at different times it was two years or one year or six months. Um, and the shipping companies, which were British owned and which, you know, basically were servicing the British colonial trade, um, those shipping companies had a right to just kind of keep, um, if a particular ship's journey came to an end, but a person's contract was not at an end, they could just shift that person over to another ship that they owned and keep them working till the end of their year or whatever. Um, what was different, though, is that because this was a globally mobile workforce and because, um, because waterfronts are porous in the sense that there were ways that people could find to leave, mm. um, this was a, a workforce compared to, say, people who were working on plantations, you know, who were in a fixed location um, and in a, in a, you know, in areas that could be more easily policed. Um, the, the British, for all their efforts at, at policing port cities and policing the movements of, of South Asian ship workers, um, and they tried. They tried very hard, and they were largely successful, but there was always a certain percentage of men who managed to jump ship um, at various different ports. And this is part of what you know I found in the existing scholarship that I mentioned, um, British and, and South Asian historians who had documented this process by which um, South Asian ship workers who were, um, again, predominantly Muslim, predominantly Bengali, um, but not entirely, um, were jumping ship in British ports, you know, as early as the late 1900s, late 19th century, late 1800s. Um, and 
creating little enclaves around the docklands of, you know, like East London or Liverpool or, or wherever. But there had been, um, the U.S. had not been explored, like that phenomena had not been really explored much in the United States. And because the United States had such severe anti-Asian immigration laws, and because the United States was a more difficult place for people, for ship jumpers to make any claim to stay, right? Because in Britain, they could at least claim that they were British subjects. Yeah. Um, so um, I think those factors also, um, you know, led to a situation where, where the U.S. case had not been explored as yet in great depth. Um, it had been sort of touched upon by some of the the existing historians. Um, but when I started, you know, to come back to like these, the documents, um, when I started looking at these ships, um, the, the lists of, of workers on, on ships coming in and out of New York, um, at a time when it was assumed that there were very few you know, I was finding hundreds and hundreds and thousands, you know, really thousands per year, thousands per year, I'm not wow. jumping ship, but like thousands per year who were coming in and out of port. Right. So they would come in on steamships, ships would unload. This would take, you know, a couple of weeks potentially um, of a ship unloading and then reloading other goods that would then be taken to the next stop on this ship. So, um, so each year there were, you know, in you know, this is going back to the 1920s, there were in the thousands, the low thousands per year of South Asian men, ship workers who were in port for a certain amount of time um, and then, you know, went back out on their ships. But also that was among that population, this was the population that was also, that also contained a, a certain number of, of, people who did jump ship successfully. And as, as more of these men successfully settled in New York um, and got jobs, um, they also became a kind of network for others to jump ship. Wow. Um, and that network then actually stretched outward from New York to a number of industrial towns, um, Detroit being probably the biggest um, but also places um, like in Ohio and Pennsylvania where there were steel mills. Um, and so these networks that started in a place like New York on the waterfront eventually extended all the way out to places like Detroit where um, in the 1910s and 20s there were hundreds of South Asian Muslim men who were working in Ford, you know, Ford car Wow, factories, right? that's crazy to think. And you know, this is 1920s. So these people that are jumping ship, they're coming to America in a time when a you had U.S. immigration laws that were like super tightened. So there was that, and then you have this second thing where you have segregation happening, where people of color were kind of you know segregated and marginalized. So how did these men kind of navigated in America and survived? in, this, in mm -hmm. these kinds of conditions and circumstances? Well, I'll get to that in a slightly roundabout way. Sure. Um, just in the sense that the, um, 
to follow on on this history that I was describing about ship workers who jumped ship. Um, one of the other things that I found in the archives uh, on one of the first trips to the municipal archives in New York were two marriage records that on the surface seemed to be just another two men, uh, Bahadur Ali and Rostam Ali, who initially I thought must have been also ship jumpers. But when I looked closely at their marriage records, um, well, first of all, they were brothers. Um, and one of them had been born in New Orleans in around 1900, and the other had been born in Mississippi around 1902. Um, and their parents were listed as Moksad Ali and Ella Blackman. And so that was very curious. So who was this Moksad Ali and what was he doing in New Orleans in, you know, at the turn of the 20th century? And who was Ella Blackman, right? Right. So that led to led me to start looking at New Orleans and at the South. And what opened up there was actually this earlier migration starting in the 1880s that I think you mentioned at the beginning <clears throat> of men who were also Bengali Muslims, but were from uh, West Bengal, um, from the region of Hooghly, you know, which is in current Indian West Bengal. Um, and they were actually coming as passengers. And they were always listed as either peddlers or merchants. And the majority, I started to see a pattern in the ship records in that they were coming through Ellis Island once a year, pretty much at the beginning of the summer. And they weren't going to New Orleans. They were going to Atlantic City and Asbury Park. Um, and then, but then I was finding that those men later in the year might turn up in New Orleans. So once I started pulling the strands of that particular history, uh, ultimately it became apparent that these were men who were, um, peddling, peddling what was then referred to as Oriental goods, um, and, over time, over a couple of years, I eventually um, figured out, um, and anyone who knows the region of Hooghly would have known this, but it took me a while to, to figure this out, is that they were specifically peddling or selling um, embroidered goods in the Chikun style or Chikun style, which is often associated with Lucknow in India, but um, also is produced in, in Hooghly. Um, so this other history, uh, which occurred, you know, even before large numbers of ship jumpers were, you know, coming in in, in New York and Philadelphia and such, um, this opened up into, uh, again, a, a, what became clear was a, a network of merchants and peddlers who were bringing goods from Hooghly that were in demand at that time at the turn of the century in the United States, because the United States was going through a kind of fad or fashion for all things we were trending. oriental, goods that were oriental, as they were called at that time, all things from the East, yeah. except workers, of course, that's another story. But um, goods from the East were very popular. And so um, it became clear over time that these men from Hooghly were 
um, selling their goods to really to working class, middle class people um, at um, tourist sites like um, Atlantic City, the Beach Boardwalk, right? Or New Orleans at that time was remaking itself as a tourist city, but one where people could go during the winter, right? Uh, people from the Northeast could go there, as, you know, and it would be warm in the winter. So um, what was common about common to both of these populations, the men who jumped ship in New York and Baltimore, et cetera, and the men who even earlier were coming through New Jersey and into the South and settling in the South, um, what was common among both of those patterns of migration was that there was um, always a small number of men who were staying and living within existing communities of color and marrying within those communities, right? So in New Orleans, the neighborhood that was where the majority of, of the silk peddlers or the chicken peddlers settled um, was the neighborhood of Treme, right? Which, you know, has been made famous by the, the, the HBO TV series. Um, but, you know, is a really important neighborhood in the history of, of um, uh, in African-American history and, and the history of freed, freed African-Americans and political organizing early on, um, early in the 20th century. Um, so um, in New Orleans, these men were marrying African-American and Afro-Creole women and settling in Treme. In New York, the men were marrying Puerto Rican and African-American women and settling either within Puerto Rican enclaves in the Lower East Side or Puerto Rican and African-American and Afro-Caribbean, um, you know, neighborhoods within Harlem. In Detroit, they were those who stayed, the smaller number, married African-American women again um, and settled in the neighborhood of Black Bottom um, and Paradise Valley, mm -hmm. um, which were, again, the center of, of um, these the growing communities of folks who were part of the Great Migration. So African-Americans who were coming to Detroit, um, you know, as part of the Great Migration to find work. Um, so everywhere I looked, these populations of Bengali Muslim, predominantly Bengali Muslim men, were settling within um, African-American and Puerto Rican neighborhoods, and a smaller number were marrying within those communities. And what that pointed to, you know, was really the crucial role not just of those communities um, in the early settlement of South Asians in the U.S., not just the centrality of African-American and Puerto Rican communities, but also specifically of African-American and Puerto Rican women. Because, you know, each one of these men that married within these communities, you know, their wives would de facto play a certain kind of role that helped them anchor themselves in those communities, help navigate, um, you know, economic circles and, you know, jobs and um, legal status and, um, and, you know, not to mention just the the day-to-day the -day domestic and reproductive labor of, of, um, of the women that, that these men married in these neighborhoods and um, you know, raising families and, and um, often doing, um, in that era, doing piecework in the home and things like that. 
Um, and then at another level, a lot of the the um, boarding houses that took in these men who were either didn't have immigration status or had a shaky immigration status. Again, a lot of the um, boarding houses were run by African-American women, right? Um, and there's, you know, in one of the chapters in, in Bengali Harlem focuses on um, uh, Dada Amir Haider Khan, who is known for his later work, the work um, that he did later in life as a labor leader in Pakistan, um, but started his working life as a ship worker and jumped ship in New York in 1918, um, and then left a memoir of his seven years in and out of, of the U.S. Um, you know, one of the most striking episodes that he describes in his memoir is having um, jumped ship with one of his, his um, uh, crewmates and then going from one boarding house to another in the middle of a February winter in New York with just like barely any, you know, just the, the minimum of clothing um, for that kind of weather um, and being turned down at one boarding house after another until they got to a boarding house run by an African-American woman who then took them in and not only took them in, but um, allowed them to hide and hid the fact that they were there for for several days until they knew the ship would have left. And then um, a, another younger African-American woman who was a boarder in that household, um, you know, bringing them food every day, you know, to the, the rooms where they were holed up until the ship left. And so, you know, there, there are these little... Um, hints of, 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 of these um, really important interactions, you know, in which um, African-American and Puerto Rican women specifically played this, this um, you know, pivotal role in allowing this particular, um, these particular populations to take hold in the United States. And, you know, once they've kind of settled in and they've kind of established themselves, Wait, so actually, I want to go back to it. Why, why is the title of the book Bengali Harlem? Why did you choose? What is the significance of Harlem? That's, that's the title that I was working with from the beginning. Okay. Right? When, when what I thought I was looking at was primarily a story about South Asian Muslim, Bengali Muslim men who jumped ship and settled in Harlem, which was Aladdin's father's story. Right, right. And the story of many, many others. But, um, as I started doing the research, you know, as I've just described, the, the picture just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just Bengalis, it wasn't just Harlem. Um, but over time, I felt like there was something um, really important that, that that title and that juxtaposition did. Because um, it's well, on a couple of different levels, one is that um, it, it, at one level it's sort of used ironically or used in in um, in contrast to um, the types of migration and settlement that that have come to dominate our idea of immigration to the U.S., which is the idea that a group, a new group, comes in 
Um, they settle in a particular enclave. They create their own enclave with their, their own shops and, and restaurants and families and, um, and kind of, you know, keep to themselves and, you know, build strength from within their own community, right? Um, and that's where you get these kinds of neighborhood names, like Spanish Harlem, right? Right. Um, and what I found interesting was that there was a kind of Bengali Harlem, but it wasn't an enclave. No. And when, an you enclave. Say, when you say enclave, you mean something like Little Italy yeah, or Little, little Italy. And these, these South Asians who came in, they didn't have this kind of little Italy or little Harlem or little India for themselves. So they had this kind of secret sneaky network that, you know, you know, someone who knows someone and there's like these spots where they can kind of find uh, refuge. And yeah, well, it's it's, you know, when you have to think about it in terms of, you know, these were men who were coming from, um, you know, their own region, villages um had been colonized by the british and you know they came from sectors of of society for whom british rule was um you know particularly devastating economically um and and um so these were these were men who were navigating that being colonial subjects navigating um the the need to support their families and villages um and using this opportunity and the mobility of the maritime trade to do that right mm -hmm. but they were also coming to a place that had um categorized asians as as um undesirable um you know the 1917 immigration act puts asians in the same category as you know it has this long list of like um, you know, drunks and, and, you know, um, just, you know, just a dis description of every possible kind of, um, negative name for any sector of society that has looked, is looked down upon, right? Um, so, you know, we look at that time or the United States as a nation likes to tell this story about itself, that it is a land of immigrants. Um, uh, the, the, the kind of the message on the Statue of Liberty, um, you know, the, the poem, give me, you're tired, you're hungry. Um, those yearning to be free, you know, that has become the picture of this era. But in the era itself, the United States was, was um, frantically trying to put up barriers to immigration and to um, non-white immigrations well to a lot of different immigrants um what about you know European? southern europeans as well i think were were targeted and um and often that was through um like anti-anarchist laws because there was and and um uh because of uh italian and italian-american engagement in um kind of left labor politics in the US. Okay. Um and um Jewish immigration, you know, all of there were a number of different groups that were um that the United States was trying to curtail their migration to the US, but the most um distinct and and, and the, the the recipients of the most severe um exclusion were Asians, 
Asians, Asia Asians often. meaning China, Japan, Korea, the Philippines, India, right? So um, basically, visually was, different. Yeah, and and you know, considered you know in American racial science yeah. or Euro American racial science right. as as like racially inferior. Right. Um, so they were leaving a place that was colonized and where their families and communities um, sort of ability to exist and survive was, was diminished by colonial rule. And they were coming to a place where they had been specifically singled out as undesirable immigrants, where the doors had been shut to them. But the doors that opened or the places where they found refuge, where they were able to build new lives, were within um, African-American and Puerto Rican neighborhoods, were alongside and with other communities that were marginalized here racially and otherwise that, that, um, that had, um, you know, even those who had citizenship had a, a second or third degree citizenship, right? So these were the communities and these were the neighborhoods within which these men found refuge and found the opportunities to, um, you know, to, to find jobs, to build lives, to send money back to their, their villages, etc. Um, wow, that's so fascinating. So, um, how did they I do? What the, what the last specific question was. <laughs> me too. Me too. But uh, my next question would be like, how? So how did they do in Harlem? How'd that go for them? You know, what did these families and mm -hmm. their children? How did they uh, settle? And how did they survive and build their lives in Harlem? Um. Well, it's you know there. There are a range of different stories and trajectories, as as might be expected. Um, you know, the the reality of some of these marriages, some of the marriages were marriages of convenience that the men used to just, you know, gain some sort of status here. Mm -hmm. There were other marriages um, that that lasted lifetimes, right? Um, and uh, you know, South Asians, particularly South Asian Muslims who settled in, in Harlem and, and for that matter, who settled in Detroit, also became, a, a, you know, they're, over time, they developed a real uh, kind of interchange or exchange between um, South Asian immigrant Muslims and African American Muslims and African American Islam, right? So you see that particularly in a place like Detroit where um, where one of the, the first people to start holding um, uh, Muslim prayers and, and, and gatherings that brought together both immigrant Muslims and or you know South Asian immigrant Muslims and African American Muslims was a man named Duz Muhammad Ali who was um, a Sudanese Egyptian, uh, intellectual who was um, uh, part of Marcus Garvey's circle, um, and so at at the moment that Garveyism was was really um, was a you know huge phenomena within African American communities. Um, this was also a moment where someone like Duz Muhammad Ali, who was rooted for a a, 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 a part of 
part of his time rooted in Detroit or spending time in Detroit was um, pulling together, um, you know, different different strands of Islam or emergent strands of African American Islam. And he, you know, there's a story that he was invited to Detroit from New York by a group of Indian Muslim men who were in New York but had connections in Detroit and wanted someone to come speak to the Muslims in uh, Muslim community in Detroit. Um, and so even that, the, the kind of historic, um, I guess, uh, decision of Duz Muhammad Ali to, to spend time in Detroit, for example, was supposedly uh, reportedly um, prompted by uh, men who were presumably part of this same population of ship jumpers, right? Wow. Um, so, you know, the, the ways in which um, South Asian and African American Islam are intertwined in that era of the 1920s and 30s, um, you know, that's a, that's a whole, um, there's much, much more there, I think, to uncover um, and, and really important histories. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, oh, so your question was really about, like, you know, how did these different families who settled in the area, you know, yeah. what did they go on to do? Did they and, start businesses, um, did they get jobs, did they move up the yeah. ladder, did they, and then did they help, did they continue on the network, or did they just kind of got, you know, faded away into history? No, no, they, they definitely maintained the, their network for, you know, years and years. Um, and, you know, there were certain key figures among those who settled in New York City. Um, Habibullah, you know, Aladdin's father, ultimately became really important as an advisor to those, um, you know, former ship workers who wanted to open restaurants. Mm. Right? So, you know, some of the first Indian restaurants, you know, that were called Indian restaurants in New York City were run by these men from what became Bangladesh. Um, who had jumped ship. And so that was one of the occupations, the kind of first step up from um, kind of manual labor within the service industry that some of the men took after saving up money, right, was to open up an Indian restaurant. Um, so Aladdin's father, Habib, was one of the first to do that um, back in the late 1940s. Uh, and then um, you know, his, his restaurant was fairly short-lived, but he then went on to become sort of an informal advisor to many other um, Bengali Muslim men who wanted to take that same route. So when those men wanted to open up a restaurant, they would come to Habib and they would, you know, he would sketch out for them like, you know, this is what the menu should look like. This is what you should have. This is how you should cook, you know, mm -hmm. for, for this particular, right. you know clientele. Um, this is how you can get the cutlery on credit before you open the restaurant. Um, you know, all these details of how to open that particular kind of small business. Um, so Habibullah played that role um, in a prominent way. Um, there were others. Um, uh, uh, Ibrahim Chowdhury um, was also one of the early Bengali Muslim men who settled in New York. And he actually came from a background of student activism in uh, in East Bengal um, yeah. and came here running from the British. 
um, in the 1920s. Um, he was involved in the Khilafat movement. Um, and so Ibrahim Chowdhury, ultimately, um, his focus shifted from Indian or, you know, Indian nationalist, independent, you know, the independence politics, independence movement politics to um, building the community of Bengali, Muslim, and other, you know, South Asian in America. Um, ship workers who had jumped ship and settled in New York. So he became kind of like the um, the, the unofficial, yeah, the the kind of leader of the community, and and he would help. He was literate, so he would write letters for people. Oh wow! Um, when they wanted to write, you know, so write he, back home. So he would wear the suit, and he would go into the law offices, and he would represent these people and try to fight. For yeah, he rights. was always he always wore a really nice suit. Like all the photographs wow. you see of him, uh, he's really like. Really nicely, very sharply dressed, as all as they all were. I mean, this was a, sort of an era where if you weren't working and in work clothes, you wore a suit and a hat, uh-huh. right? Um, but Ibrahim Chowdhury, he would visit people in the hospitals. We heard from, uh, and this is for the documentary as well. You know, Aladdin and I spoke to Ibrahim Chowdhury's two children, um, Noor and Laili. And they talked about how, you know, people would come knock on the door in the middle of the night and their father would just like be out the door and be gone, right? Because someone needed help. Uh, but they also told this story that Ibrahim Chowdhury went to all the local hospitals in New York City and said, and gave them a list with the same, basically the same names that I searched under. Like if anyone comes into, the, is admitted to the hospital with the name Mia or Ali or Ulla, um, call me. And wow. so the you know, so when these men from this community landed in the hospital, these hospitals knew to call Ibrahim Chowdhury and he would come and he would, you know, bring food to them. He would help translate with the doctors. And, um, and he also Europe. was, yeah, he was, he was quite a, a phenomenon. Um, he also uh, testified in, uh, or wrote a letter that became part of the testimony to Congress in the 19... Um, in the late 30s, early 40s, which was the first time that there was a big push by South Asians in the U.S., Indian at that time, um, who were trying to have the immigration laws changed and open up the possibility of naturalization and things like that. So um, so Ibrahim Chowdhury was also kind of part of this lobbying effort in Congress. Um, so he, you know, he was really, and he also um, helped to found an organization which was called the Pakistan League of America. And that became, I mean, it was at a time when present-day Bangladesh was East Pakistan. So it was formed in 1947 and went through the 40s and 50s and into the 60s. And so the, the members of that club or social organization were predominantly from what was then East Pakistan, what would become Bangladesh, um, and consisted predominantly of men who had jumped ship and settled in New York. Um, so the Pakistan League had offices on the Lower East Side, um, a kind of, kind of a clubhouse where they would have meetings, where people would go to, you know, hang out. And, and um, so, um, so he ran that. He was the, the head of the Pakistan League. He kept getting voted in as president of the Pakistan League. Um, yeah, and then, you know, there's another, um, there's another family, um, where 
husband and wife. The husband was um, Sileti, I think, and the wife was from the um, was Afro Caribbean from the French Caribbean, um, and they were through the 1950s at least. I think were were kind of the touch point for pe for men who wanted to jump ship. So people would come with their names and addresses on a slip of paper and after jumping ship would find their home and come knock at their door and they would, you know, this particular family would take them in and then help them and help them find jobs and all of that. So, so yes, there were these key, you know, in all these different ways, whether it was, you know, helping men to jump ship, helping men to navigate life in New York City, to navigate immigration, to deal with hospitals, etc., or you know, to open small businesses. There were some of the earliest ship jumpers to settle here and to marry within African American and Puerto Rican communities. Um, you know, they were the the kind of infrastructure that allowed right. this to continue happening. And again, they you know their the, their ability to stay and exist and function in those capacities was also based upon the the labor um, and connections brought um, by their wives, their African-American Puerto Rican wives. So, you know, it's important to, to recognize that, again, you know, here, that, that the ways in which these networks, these kind of clandestine networks took shape at a time when the U.S. had shut its door to um, South Asians with these very, you know, um, racist immigration laws that that the the networks that did take shape were were formed both by you know south asian men who had already settled here and by their wives who were connected to these other communities of color that's pretty cool how would how would you say your research kind of challenges the narrative the classic mainstream narrative of the american dream because the american dream is pretty much you know, America brings in these immigrants, immigrants give them a chance for a better life, and America's the hero at the end of the day. You know, one of the one of the central aspects of of the kind of American dream and, and particularly where the idea of the American dream intersects with the idea of the model minority. Um you know, the unspoken assumption there is that assimilation and aspiration are pointed toward whiteness, right? Are toward are pointed toward um, you know succeeding in a white um, succeeding in um, uh, white America, uh, uh, succeeding in um, kind of uh, uh, well, the you know the classic trajectory is is really you know what I started to describe earlier is sort of the idea that an immigrant group comes in, they form an immigrant enclave, they kind of support each other, and then they start moving into the suburbs, always though the white suburbs. And, and, and the idea of success is all bound in, you know, material success, becoming um, a successful doctor, lawyer, engineer, etc. Right. Um, and you know that that is a trajectory in which South Asian Americans are expected to um, accept U.S. society as it is, right. to and to trust that what has been promised that anyone can come here and succeed 
is the truth, right? And um, rather than coming here and and looking around and recognizing the deep inequalities within this society and um, and recognizing um, you know the 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 racial and class um, stratification of American society. Um, you know, the, the quest toward model minority status is one that turn, not just turns a blind eye to all of that, but at its worst embraces all of the, the narratives that excuse those uh, inequalities, right? So, you know, I think that, that you know, although the, the stories of, of South Asian immigrants who took a very different trajectory, not into um, white middle-class suburbia, but, um, but into working class African-American and Latinx communities, that that trajectory, it, at the very least, it, it, it shows that there is, it, it, it destabilizes the idea that the only trajectory of success and integration and assimilation is, um, is through whiteness or white adjacency. Right, um, and it's not to say that that those um, that the trajectory into other communities of color was always, um, you know, without friction. You know, um, there, you know, even within the different um, communities, uh, 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 African descended communities in Harlem, you know, historians have written about the sort of divisions within, say, between, say, Caribbean. Um, Afro-Caribbean folks in Harlem and, and African-American folks from the South who came to Harlem. Um, you know, there, there's, there's never, you know, it's never just a, a case where there's no friction or competition or, or, um, or division. But I think what's important about these stories of South Asians who came here and built their lives and, and, um, families within African-American and Puerto Rican communities um, is that even when there were, when there were frictions and difficulties and conflicts, that, that there was also a day-to-day -day negotiation of all of that within and with those communities, right? So that people learned to be neighbors with and to, um, to, learn about and, and see the kind of day-to-day -day commonalities with other communities of color, right? Members of other communities of color. Right. And, and that's a very different kind of integration into U.S. society. And it's one that I think also holds a higher possibility of people of South Asian descent recognizing certain kinds of commonalities around um, the the existing inequalities and injustices of this society, right? Right. Um, so you know, one thing that I try to make clear often when I talk is that that the intermarriages that I'm describing in the book, you know, intermarriage is not equivalent to solidarity, right? You know, marriage, the family, That's um, true. you know, all of those units are, um, you know, are, are rife with their own power dynamics and inequalities and violences, right? But um, 
But I do think that that the kinds of um, cross-racial, interracial, interfaith families and communities that that you that that I started to see in this research are at least the the, the beginning point for potential solidarities, political solidarities, yeah. because they put people in proximity on a human level to recognize those sets of commonalities in terms of how um, how they are or how they or we are racialized in unique but interconnected ways um, of, of how, you know, recognizing the ways that immigrants are, are used against African Americans and immigration as a narrative is used as a way to invisibilize indigenous histories and, and continuing struggles. Um, you know, the possibilities of, 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 Achieving that kind of um, level of, of political, social and political consciousness and, and the potential for more specifically political solidarities, I think, um, you know, I do believe is, is enhanced in a situation where different communities of color, communities of color are living with and amongst one another and interacting with and among, with and amongst one another. If that makes sense. That makes sense. That's beautiful. Um, that's a good way to conclude it. Is there anything you want to add? All right. Um, well, I'll just say um, two things. One, um, if you're listening to this podcast, please also donate, no. sign up. You know, do you, you have a Patreon? Is that right? I do have a Patreon, but you don't have to do okay. this. No, I I do because you know you're 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 very you. Have devoted a lot of, um, you know, really, um, uh, a lot of passion and time and labor to to create the the in Instagram account and oh the podcast. And Thank and you. no, I'm saying this because it's something I just really really appreciate what you're doing and um, and you're reaching a lot of people and you know with histories that have have you know largely been um kept from us our own histories right and and that's really important work and and uh, so i'm just you know to anyone who's listening i just encourage you to support that work um not just by listening or by you know watching so thank you um and then um the second plug is is just that um to keep uh uh, to uh, watch out in the next six months or so, um, Aludin and I should find should be finally um, completing and releasing the Bengali Harlem documentary. Whoa! <clears throat> and um, as I mentioned, this is where this whole journey started because Aludin and I met <clears throat> and agreed to work together on a documentary, and that was you know 15 years ago. Um, so all these other Detours that enriched, um, you know, that that enriched the the the, the project, um, you know, now have been able to feed back into the documentary itself, which we've been able to return to now after many years. In the last, you know, five, six, seven years, we've been we've been really it's a long, kind long of journey putting it together. Yeah, and um, uh, yeah, so. Um, Soon to come. I'm excited for that. 
All right. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Take care.